Grace to you and peace. From God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This series gets us thinking about brutal words. I can't really sugarcoat them. And I'm super good at sugarcoating stuff. And I'm not, I can't do it with these words. They're, they're brutal. But they're right from our text. They're right from Mark 14 and 15. They're mocked and beaten and insulted and murdered. And I didn't really want to preach on murder today. Everyone was tired at 8 o'clock church. And you should have just seen it. It was really hard. And I was tired. I don't know about you, but the clock thing drives me nuts today. I was obsessing all day yesterday. Okay, if I go to bed at 7, that's really 8. And then, and then I woke up this morning at 3.56, right? Because you look at the digital clock and it's 3.56. And I got up and I, and I looked at my thing, my thing, and this syncs with my phone, so I checked my phone. And, and I went downstairs and I looked at the oven because I knew my wife would have changed that. And they all lined up. And I go, okay, it's 3.56. I can sleep for another hour and four minutes. And it's just... Uh, we're going to preach on something easy and soft. And, but that death of Jesus, it, it kind of stops us in our tracks. It's, it's not the, 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 the tangential piece of the faith. It, it's not like you, you say, well, I'll take this and this. and Yeah, the death of Christ will take that too. No, no, the death of Christ is at the center of the faith. That, that's what saves us. That's what redeems us. That's the sacrifice for our sin for all time. And, and it doesn't necessarily feel good or look pretty, or, but it sticks in the heart. It makes a difference for you and me and how we live and the confidence with which we live and the connection to God that we have. All of those pieces are tied to the fact that Jesus of Nazareth was executed. And yet we're forgiven. One of my favorite books is Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers. And, and I love that book because Gladwell comes at stuff from such a weird way of looking at things. And you're like, I never thought of it that way before. In, in one of his books, he talks about why there's only one kind of ketchup and over 200 kinds of mustard. I never thought about that before, but I also never thought about this, that it takes 10,000 hours to be super good at anything. If you have a specific skill and a specific affinity, 10,000 hours gets you to be super good at it. Because of an open door in a library where Bill Gates grew up, Bill was able to sneak into that library, Gladwell says, and in sneaking in, he was able to log 10,000 hours of computer programming before he even went to Harvard, which put him a quantum leap ahead of the people with which he went to school. A certain basketball player from North Carolina's father put a, a, a hoop on his garage and that basketball player would go out and shoot basket after basket, after junior high practice, after high school practice, after all of those things. And when Michael Jordan ramped up to go to the North Carolina University or UNC University of North Carolina, he had over 10,000 hours in of practice and play of shooting and rebounding. A concert violinist, at 10,000 hours, things break. 
The, the music doesn't be so, become something that you rigidly stick to, but the notes almost become suggestions or guides rather than counting and working so quickly to make sure it's so right. The music almost comes out of the fingers and the heart and the soul and through the instrument, touches the life of, of the one who hears it. 10,000 hours. It all comes together at 10,000 hours. And so as I struggled with this this week, and I, I thought about when did I hit 10,000 hours of preaching? Wow. And the answer is about 10 years ago. Five hours for prep, preaching 20 minutes, three Sundays a week typically. I kind of averaged it all out. Somewhere around 43, 44 years old, I hit that magic 10,000 hours. And you know what? Gladwell was right. I don't sit like I did before that and have my stomach do gyrations. Uh, your approval means something to me, but now if I preach a clunker of a sermon and someone goes, man, that was terrible, I go, okay, whatever, right? It's just a different thing. I, I, I can get after experience that, that I bring to the text, the text itself, and your experience and the experience with the congregation in the world in a way that's cohesive rather than stupid. Typically, 10,000 hours is, is a lot of preaching and a lot of prep. And it always comes back to that execution of Jesus. I can tell you in all those messages I've ever preached, every message I've heard any pastor ever preach at any occasion ever at St. John's, I've heard of the execution and the murder of Jesus of Nazareth. Not as something that's kind of added on to the faith, but at the core of the faith. What holds us together, what drives our lives, what drives who we are and our identity and what we're all about. See, without that piece of the faith, we got nothing to hold on to. But with that piece, we have everything. Good preaching always comes back to Jesus Christ on the cross. St. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1 verses 22 and 23 these words. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. And so real Christianity talks about death. And we have death figured out. We, 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 if you go to a celebration of life for a person who didn't know Jesus, it's markedly different than a memorial service or a funeral for someone who did. And the people anchored and rooted to Christ and his cross understand and get death and the grave and forgiveness and resurrection and new life and the power and promises of God and your basic pagan person doesn't get it. And they cry, as Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians, as people who have no hope. Every evangelical and evangelistic sermon has to do with the execution of Jesus. And the instrument of that murder has become iconic, right? Ladies, you have a necklace that means a lot to you? It's a cross that someone gave you? You went to a jewelry store or the swap meet or something and said... And you look at that cross and it reminds you of the person you put it on and 
hangs beautifully, gold or silver or wood or whatever. And, and some people will put that cross on their body in a tattoo. And they say, give me a cross. I say, well, what does it mean? I say, I don't know, but I want a cross. Because the cross is iconic. And whether it's a necklace or a tattoo or whatever, it puts the person in proximity to the source of the execution. And each of us is called, not just with a necklace or a, or a tattoo, but with faith, to be in close proximity to the cross of Jesus. Because there's power in the blood of Jesus. And so each message, each sermon, each life, each one of us in our walk with Jesus have to reckon that cross you can't just walk by Jesus with a wink and a nod and say, yeah, that's all cool, dude, no big deal. For some people, the cross, the icon, is just a little bit of art. It's visually stimulating, it's visually affirming, and not really held in a deep spiritual manner. For others, the cross is a sign and seal of foolishness. How dumb could you be? In your own Apostles' Creed, it said he suffered, died, and was buried. Isn't that enough? He died. And when he died, it was over. And for you guys to wear that cross is a scandal of stupidity. Why would you do that? Still others try to reckon the cross and hide from the cross because the love of the cross uncovers painful pieces and painful episodes in their life. We look at the cross and the broken corpus of Jesus, and we say, I should be there. It's my sins and my broken pieces that put him there. And for some people, the guilt and the shame and the deep struggles that they have in their lives break them down when they get to the foot of the cross. Still others try to run away. They run and they run and they run. We have a young man in our own church who, born and raised here, Went to Lutheran High School where I went. Running away right now. God only knows where he's at, what he's doing. Only connected through text message. But, but I got to believe at some point he looks back and like some bizarre episode from the Twilight Zone, he looks over his shoulder and there's the cross of Jesus Christ in his drug-filled frenzy. And even though he is passive, Yet the active love of Jesus shadows over him and covers him in safety, even though he, with other prodigal children, run away as far and fast as they can. So what hour is it for you? Maybe this 15-minute sermon will be the first 15 minutes you've heard the gospel in a long, long time. Or maybe you've heard it a million times. You're going, okay, it's going to be 12,418, Klinkenberg. Whoa, that's pretty good. You're going to be over 70 if that happens, by the way. That's pretty good to you. And you will have had to gone to church over 50 weeks every year for your whole life. <laughs> I actually have a rocket scientist from 8 o'clock service sitting up where hall savers are. He's going to figure that out for me, how that works mathematically, because I didn't want to speak out of my ear too much this morning. 10,000 hours of listening to sermons. 10,000 hours. What do you remember? Some remember the poignant stories of family. They say, Pastor, remember when you told us about? And we went through the same thing in our family. 
Other people remember the silly stuff. They say, we remember the story about the Packer guy, and blah, blah, blah. Ha, ha, that was pretty funny. Some people remember the mistakes and the malaprops. And sometimes when I get unscripted, I get a little crazy. And that's just part of me being me. I hope that what we remember the most is the cross. That at the core of every message is the cross of Jesus Christ. The execution, the murder of our Lord Jesus, betrayed, mocked, and murdered, and yet in him we are forgiven. And that cross is the central point of Christianity. It draws our hearts through faith in Jesus Christ and we who follow and know Jesus don't find fear or, 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 or shame or pain at the cross. We find comfort and peace and, and hope and the power of God displayed in the weakness of Jesus. And that murder brings us life. And at the cross, we have atonement. I love the word atonement. At-one-ment, atonement. This with God. Because in Christ, on the cross, anything that would separate us from God is sacrificed right there. My sins, my hurt, my brokenness, gone. Dead at the cross. God reaches down and says, here's you and here's me, here's Jesus, and now we're like this. There is nothing that would rip me away or you away from God because of the atonement of Christ on the cross. And the cross then becomes that iconic symbol of closeness to God through the sacrifice of Jesus. Maybe that's one reason why we hold that cross so dear. And at the cross, we have forgiveness of our sins. You and me, we come covered with sin and naked with shame and God provides sacrifice to cover over our sin. 10,000 plus times we've heard the gospel. We've received words of forgiveness and peace over and over and over again. So the words that run in our mind are not words of judgment and fear and God stretching us out. But words of redemption and words of kindness and words of warmth. God saying to us, like he said to those guys who were me messing with him on the cross, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive Tim. Father, forgive them. And we are set free from the shadows of our past and look forward to a future of grace with our risen Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, the cross delivers a powerful sense of abundant hope. I was privileged my first, just the, the, I was privileged my first couple years of ministry to serve with Pastor Constine. Pastor Constine was about so tall, and he had silver hair combed to the side, and he had a beautiful voice like this. And he always did this when he preached. It was kind of funny. You know, faith is hope that looks forward. I'll never forget that. Hope is faith that looks forward. Christ lit the fuse of hope on the cross, and hope explodes when Jesus comes out of the tomb. But the fuse of hope burns brightly at the cross. Your future, my future, the future of the world is not centered in God needing to punish and God needing vengeance, but hope is faith that looks forward with great love, with great forgiveness, and with the promise that our Lord Jesus comes to take us home. Hope 
is faith that looks So if you're tracking today, how many messages have you heard and how close are you to 10,000 hours? If you've been coming to church and you mostly listen to me, I'm 17 to 20 minutes, almost right on. When I look on the website and I criticize my own sermons, I'm right there, 17, 20, 22, but right there. So for my sermons, if you listen for, you know, 30 years, you'll get, you'll get close to 10,000. If you listen to Pastor Rosso at 10 to 12 minutes, it's going to take a little longer. <laughs> but that's okay. His use of language is so rich, it may just double up a little bit because he does such a fine job. His sermon last week, I listened online, is just powerful. I've never thought of that stuff. 10,000 hours. Perhaps this message takes you even beyond that. Or perhaps this message is the first time, or the first time in a long time, you've considered the centrality of Christ on the cross for you and me, more than jewelry or ink, more than a mere symbol. It's this message, the message of Jesus for us on the cross, that is central to Christianity, that leads us home with our Lord, murdered, executed, and yet in Christ we are forgiven. Amen.